a few years ago when I was in the process of getting some prerequisite hours completed to become a dental hygienist, I had an interaction with a patient that ended up changing the course of where I wanted to go with my career. Raina Oliver is a senior at the University of Washington and a health equity research intern at Providence. I had a teenager come in one day and he had some major cosmetic damage to his teeth and he wasn't sure if his father would be able to pay for the procedure. So they had actually come in to get some preventative care done and they had not even asked about having his teeth repaired because they thought that it was something that he just had to live with. And I was like, absolutely no, this is something that we can take care of. And so I ended up advocating on their behalf. And I remember going and speaking with the front desk at the time and they were saying, oh, well, he doesn't have such and such coverage. And so I was like, well, why doesn't he have it? And so I connected the family. So they were able to get signed up for coverage and we were able to do some cosmetic dentistry procedures that ended up revamping his smile. And he was so touched. He ended up breaking down crying, and that's something that you don't typically see for a teenage boy. I know culturally teenage boys are have to be rough and tough, and, and they don't cry, and so it ended up just being such an emotional moment for me to have him bust into tears and hug me just because he was like, you have absolutely no idea what this has done for me. Throughout high school, I was embarrassed to ask people to dances. I didn't want to smile. There were so many things in my life that I wasn't able to access. People are judged often if they have something wrong with their teeth and it can be a huge barrier to getting a job, having someone who loves you, things like that. And so um, just seeing that this made a huge difference in his life opened up my eyes and made me want to pursue public health as opposed to just dental hygiene. today's program, we explore the deep connections between poverty and health. Those are families and individuals who are having to make regular trade-offs and decisions about what basic needs are most important to be met that month or in that given week. Whether that be paying for nutritious food, their utilities, health care, getting their car serviced, or being able to access care directly, those are all barriers. So when we think about those who are most vulnerable, those who are imprisoned, those who have no access, those who are at the fringe of society, those who have been victims of discrimination and structural violence, we have to start with them because they are most at risk. Disease has a preferential option for the poor. And so too, as healthcare institutions, we have to combat illness and poverty with a preferential option for the poor. And I think as we understand that very Christian teaching, the first shall be the last and the last shall be first, that's how we begin to build a healthier world. On today's program, conversations about poverty's impact on health. You're listening to the Hear Me Now podcast. It comes to you from the Providence Institute for Human Caring. I'm Sean Collins. I'm so glad you're listening. Stay with us. As we talk about poverty, one thing that's really important is keeping in mind exactly what that means. Megan Mackinich jones directs Community Investment Strategy and Evaluation for Providence. So for our purposes within Providence, we generally talk about 200% of the federal poverty level. And for context, that's about $50,000 for a family of four in a given year. And so we see that showing up and affecting health in a variety of ways, but the greatest of which is really in recognizing that those are families and individuals who are having to make regular trade-offs and decisions about what basic needs are most important to be met that month or in that given week, whether that be paying for nutritious food, their utilities, healthcare, getting their car serviced, or being able to access care directly, 
those are all barriers. And of course, underpinning all of this is of course at the challenges associated with affordable housing um, and housing instability in so many of our communities where we recognize uh, the detrimental effects and interrelated um, nature of housing stability in particular can directly have on a patient and an individual and their health outcomes. One piece of data that you shared with us earlier was that um, 40% of American adults aren't able to afford an unexpected $400 expense. It's a shocking figure. Um, and I think really grounding in this work and the priority of recognizing um, how the rate of poverty that we have, frankly, within our country. Um, and so this is a survey that's administered annually by the Federal Reserve. Um, it's a survey for household economics and decision-making, or SHED. And in 2019, that report found that approximately 40% of American adults wouldn't be able to afford an unexpected $400 expense without selling something immediately or going into debt. And we're talking $400 unexpected expenses. So that's just how close so many adults and families are living within their monthly budget. Now we do see some information from 2021 that in part due to some of the stimulus that was in effect during COVID, that number has gone down to about 36%. Um, but so it'll be interesting to see where we wind up in 2022 and 2023. Um, however, I would think that we would want that number much lower, uh, kind of closer to the below 10% of households uh, really being able to afford or manage an unexpected expense of $400. What about food insecurity. We've read that it's become more of an issue during the pandemic. And certainly one facet of that is the fact that a lot of school kids weren't going to school where perhaps breakfast and lunch were being served. But there are other examples of food insecurity. I'm wondering if you can talk about that. Absolutely. Again, food security, as all of this, is a complex issue. Um, so there's a difference also, I'd say, between access to food and affordable access to nutritious food. Um, and so there's not only standard food insecurity of um, a family being concerned about their ability uh, to purchase food or concerned about running out of food in the next 30 days, um, which is some, some standard screening tools that we have, but there's also the concept of are you getting the fruits and vegetables? Are you able to afford some fresh produce? What does the partnership with farmers markets look like to accept SNAP or EBT um, and other benefits? So again, you picked up on uh, school children in particular. Um, again, seniors, uh, we've been doing a lot of work with Meals on Wheels and similar programs to ensure that particularly seniors who are isolated um, can have access to nutritious food. There was a great collaborative um, in the LA market uh, helping to ensure uh, outreach to seniors in particular, but I really, again, across our footprint, um, a lot of effort in ensuring that school-aged kids and their families, right? I think that's also really easy to forget that it's not just the children often in those situations who are food insecure. It's the mothers who are choosing not, who are skipping dinner in order to make sure their kids do have that meal. Um, making sure that those families and those children through food banks, through food pantries, through school bus deliveries, um, even when school wasn't in session, really trying to help uh, bridge that divide um, and ensuring food access. Um, but again, just one of those things where there's, there's so much more uh, that could be done. And we have a wonderful network of various food banks and food pantries um, and culturally specific outreach teams that can really connect with families to make sure that not only are they receiving a healthy food, but they're receiving culturally appropriate food that they know how to cook, that they're familiar with, um, that, that brings them closer to their own culture too. Megan, tell us about what success could look like in a community. I think that there's so many opportunities uh, for communities as we move in this space and particularly recognizing that it's going to be success varies. But as we think really about that broader place-based community health, addressing poverty is really focused in not only um, increasing opportunities, 
but really focusing on kind of how do we move differently as our systems towards wealth generation and wealth creation for individuals and families who have been historically marginalized or experiencing poverty, as well as those who currently are. And so we've had some incredible success with some of our uh, lighter touch downstream clinical programs where we offer screening and referral, uh, warm handoffs to social service agencies when patients screen positive for social needs. Um, and so if we do have a family who says, yes, I'm concerned about whether we'll run out of food in the next 30 days, we have a route directly there to make sure that that, that, that family is connected to food resources. So that's kind of one really downstream example. On the other end of the spectrum, we have folks working at the policy level, making sure that as we are engaging with schools, what are the policies, what are the legislative opportunities around free and reduced lunch, um, providing school breakfast and lunch, or expanding those opportunities. Um, and all of that, again, with the lens of not only does that address immediate food insecurity for that child, but it also helps their focus, helps their concentration in school, helps their engagement in school, help, hopefully helps with that academic achievement and opportunity to continue in those pursuits. And then on the other, and another example, we have an amazing initiative around housing and stability and homelessness. We have a variety of programs, again, across our footprint that really focus on um, those already experiencing homelessness as well as really looking at how do we address the root causes when it comes to housing affordability. And so we're really looking at this across the spectrum. Um, we've all heard the uh, Desmond Tutu uh, of upstream and downstream, and we're really kind of trying to cover the whole river uh, as we think about what these interventions are, what the opportunities are. And um, in one example with in Alaska, where we do have a very strong partnership with the Anchorage Coalition to End Homelessness in addressing housing instability and homelessness. We've actually had success not only rehousing individuals, but also bringing um, folks who have successfully been through the program, been rehoused, been through um, their transitional care programs, and are now housing advocates. And so they're using what they've learned through that experience to support others as peers, as advocates, as navigators through that housing system. And I think that's really the sweet spot where we've had so much power and opportunity is helping people as they, as they transition out of these needs, how can they coach and bring others along as peers in this experience? I'm really grateful for you taking the time today. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Megan Mackinich-Jones directs Community Investment Strategy and Evaluation for Providence. Dana Codron is a registered nurse and the Northern California Regional Director of Community Health Investment for Providence. She explained to me the importance of culturally specific outreach in achieving community health. In our Northern California footprint here with Providence, we have a multitude of programming through our community health investment uh, division that goes out into the community and, and um, serves uh, people within the community outside the hospital walls. Multiple programs, some of them are clinical, like a mobile health clinic in Sonoma or mobile dental clinics in Napa and Sonoma. Some of them are more social service in nature, such as community resource centers, in Humboldt County, and um, I will share uh, a story of um, one of the programs up in um, Humboldt County that we call um, Healthy Kids Humboldt, and it's ex an extension of our Paso a Paso program, which is step by step. Um, a program that is um, focusing on our Spanish-speaking uh, neighbors in our communities and supporting them. We will say Maria is not her real name. Um, came to our, our Family Resource Center because we have community health workers who are bilingual, bicultural, who are trained to assist with taxes. They're trained tax preparers, and it's a national program called uh, VITA, which is a volunteer um, tax preparer program, specially trained. And um, 
this mom came in um, with a complicated set of tax issues. Um, she had past due taxes, she had frozen funds, disallowed child tax credits, employment verification um, problems, a tax identification number problems, and these were all addressed through a series of meetings and appointments, and in the process, our caregivers, our community health workers, were able to discern the extent of this family's financial struggles, um, as well as some significant health care concerns for the mom. So they assisted the mother with the process of applying for full scope Medi-Cal coverage, which would cover the specialty care that she needed. And then also this then applied to her um, past medical bills so that all those medical bills that had built up prior would now be covered through this full scope Medi-Cal. So this was a huge financial burden that was lifted immediately. In addition, we were able to provide some food vouchers and transportation vouchers um, and assist uh, with her accessing the specialty care and the physical therapy that she needed. They also, family also were, were able to get um, over $2,000 in tax return back through this program, uh, which is the original reason she, she sought help and service, but we were able to um, help with so much more. This was life-changing for this family and actually was able to change the trajectory of, of moving forward for them um, just through this simple um, one appointment and discovering and helping. This is really a, a, um, a, a good example of living our promise of know me, care for me, ease my way. You, you talked about changing the trajectory of a family. That has got to be terribly gratifying for you. And, and we do see this uh, often uh, in another program that we have across our, uh, that we provide across our footprint in our, in our uh, region is a program called Care Network. And um, it is a uh, community-based complex care management program. We have teams of nurses, social workers, and community health workers that um, make home visits, that see people, whether they're in a shelter or in a tent or in a home, um, uh, wherever they are. And um, we send um, uh, caregivers who are culturally um, responsive. So if we need bilingual, bicultural caregivers to, um, to provide this service, then, then we provide that. As you mentioned earlier in the podcast, it is not uncommon for us to go into a home and understand why, for example, um, Mrs. Smith has been in the emergency three, t three times for heart failure. Um, it's because um, she's choosing uh, whether to pay her rent or feed her cat or um, a co-pay for a medication. Um, let alone the um, expense or difficulty of transportation uh, to a doctor's appointment. So all of these factors come into play. When we have a social worker and a community health worker there, immediately we can assess what um, the individual is eligible for in terms of subsidies and resources, and often people are eligible for quite a bit of support. But the hoops to jump through and the applications to jump through are just not easy for most folks to navigate. And so we do that for them. We help them with the paperwork. We submit it for them, and then we advocate for them also. If they want us to, we'll go with them to a Social Security disability appointment. We'll um, gather all the paperwork they need from their doctor's offices. All of these efforts, uh, once we uh, get these applications approved and, and people move through the process, which can take weeks, um, actually help to stabilize um, their basic needs because um, finance, finances are becoming more um, manageable. Uh, they have support and help to um, uh, pay bills, to get the transportation that they need. We provide food. Um, and, and then once uh, basic needs are stabilized, then um, someone can, can work on their health, right? Because that tends to fall that tends to fall back if someone is, especially someone who has a family, uh, their their health needs tend to fall lower on the importance scale. So once we get all those basic needs situated, it is um, easier for us then to have our nurse come in and work with someone on managing heart failure, managing their diabetes, um, understanding how important it is to make those routine uh, doctor's appointments that keeps them from getting so sick and needing to go to the emergency room or be hospitalized. And uh, this program, the Care Network program, has a lot of data and statistics behind it that show um, that we are able to change the trajectory uh, for these folks in that 
um, they're they're needing to hit the emergency emergency department much uh, less uh, frequently, and that there in of itself is proof of um, improved health and quality of life. Right? If they don't have to, don't feel right. like they have to be in the emergency room so frequently. And resource management. I mean, the expense of going to an emergency room for routine care can't be ignored. Exactly. In the world of community benefit or community health investment, our lens is to improve, help to improve the health and quality of life of those people we in our communities that we serve. And in doing so, that ripple effect uh, does include um, improved health. If we're doing our job right, it improves improved uh, improved health, which then equals um, uh, reduced need for emergency room visits and urgent care and those types of things. Um, so the uh, the outcome is multifold, um, not just in um, improved health and quality of life, but also the re- reduced health care costs and the burden to our communities and those health care costs. Yeah. I'm reminded of um, all those diagrams we saw in school of Maslow's uh, hierarchy of needs. And at the very bottom are things like shelter and um, safety. And up a level from that is health and, you know, well-being. And then beyond that, all the sort of self-actualization that we strive for is full human beings. But if you're not meeting that basic level of safety and having a roof over your head, it's really hard to focus on anything else. It, it really is, Sean. I, um, I, um, I began my health care career as a registered nurse within the walls of the hospital, and particularly in a, a cardiac unit for most of those years, and did see um, um, familiar faces um, come through with recurring um, heart problems. And I recall we would um, adjust medications and, and provide the education and um, then discharge them out the door and then wonder why uh, they would return. And then when I went into home health and I made home visits, I saw exactly why people were returning and it has nothing to do with the inability to manage a chronic disease. It has everything to do with socioeconomic status. It has everything to do with um, having the resources and the finances um, to maintain your basic needs, which is shelter and food. Um, and, uh, and then if those are not stabilized, we're not going to be able to help people manage a chronic disease. That's just not going to be top of the list. So uh, um, all these um, investments that we're doing now uh, around housing, supportive housing, recuperative housing for people discharging from the hospitals, um, those really are um, paramount to helping people improve their health. Uh, It's like you said, it's basic needs, it's shelter, it's food. And we've got to start there and it has to be stable. Um, if it's not stable, i.e. Mm-hmm. someone's fluctuating in between shelters and living under the bridge, um, that's not stable housing. Um, we, uh, we need to work on those social determinants, those social needs um, in order to impact um, long-term health outcomes. Tell me about Parent University. I, I read a little bit about it and am fascinated by it. Yes. Well, Parent University uh, was... Uh, uh, envisioned uh, first in Napa County uh, and um, I personally was one of the four people at the table when we first talked about it. A a principal at an elementary school, a rather large elementary school, over 600 children, um, 90% English language learners, um, was um, reaching out to nonprofits that do this kind of work to say, how can you help me? What can we do? to help these children academically achieve and to get the parents involved because um, clearly if the children are English language learners, the parents generally are um, monolingual Spanish or at best uh, only speak very little English and are not comfortable in the school environment. Um, So we, a long story short, uh, along with a nonprofit called On The Move here in Napa, developed this program initially called Napa Valley Parent University. It since then has extended to multiple counties, including Sonoma County. 
it is a curriculum of classes that are taught um, in Spanish and include uh, a large variety of, of topics that the parents are interested in. So the idea is to engage parents in school, in their children's school, and um, uh, build a, a, a support system, if you will, of certain parents so that they feel comfortable in the environment, they feel comfortable engaging with the teachers, and um, this this program has been tremendously successful. Um, even uh, Google has put it on their teachers' um, tips uh, uh, website for tips for teachers and um, some strategies to use. So uh, this uh, parent university has over a hundred classes in their curriculum. The parents who take the classes get units or credits. If they get so many units or credits by the end of the year, then they graduate and there's a ceremony. Their children and their, all their families are invited. Um, the parents um, also have opportunities to take classes around volunteering in the classroom, so it gets the parents in the classroom or on the playground. Um, and it also, uh, uh, we also infuse health-related classes, so mental health and oral health and um, assisting your child with their homework, how to participate in a parent-teacher conference. Um, we help people get um, internet literate because a lot of parents either don't have access or um, haven't established an email or have not um, had experience on the internet, um, which is a big disadvantage when now, especially with the pandemic, a lot of classwork is done um, uh, uh, over on the internet um, and electronically. So. One um, parent, we'll say her name is Maria, um, is, is a mom who speaks very little English. Um, she does not have a, a formal education. She did not, did not graduate um, high school. Um, lack of affordable childcare, and she is a domestic violence survivor. Um, and so there is prior involvement in the child welfare system and also um, she ha lacks access um, uh, to reliable technology and internet. So she was referred to Parent University by the school because the child, uh, her son, uh, was not turning in uh, his homework and he had a lot of absenteeism. So through the Parent University um, engagement process, uh, the mom was linked to the school's on-site family resource center, so we were able to provide emergency financial assistance to help uh, make ends meet just month to month um, for basic needs, and then also provided access to safe um, child care for her children, and also provided her some mental health counseling. So. In addition to that, she then participated in some parent university classes, and one of the classes that she took was how to prepare for a parent-teacher conference. And then another class was around technology access and um, really becoming familiar with um, technology and internet. Part of Parent University is also to engage in uh, connect these parents with the school. Um, social connection is so important when we talk about mental health and um, and feeling part of community. And so this particular parent actually supported um, outreach activities for Parent University classes and understanding um, that she, as a mom in this school, is a trusted messenger to other parents. And so her positive uh, experience with Parent University then allows her to provide outreach and um, share with others and get others involved. So um, as a result, her, uh, her son over the next year had perfect attendance and even received a Student of the Month Award at one point. She has access to safe childcare. She has access to technology and internet. Um, she is fully recovered now from the economic impact due to the pandemic and fully engaged in um, her school and her school community. Um, she actually even um, um, uh, was um, given a, a higher paying job with the school uh, that she uh, that her children go to. So she's actually teaching parent university classes and also working in the office at the school that uh, her children go to. Well, if I were one of the people at the table when that program was developed, I would feel pretty proud now. And I, I hope you realize how much you have been able to have an effect on people's lives. It's really wonderful work. Well, thank you. I feel blessed to have um, 
an organization like Providence that invests in this work in our communities. Uh, this yeah. is way beyond uh, acute clinical medical health care. This is really uh, uh, looking at the, the whole person in a, a holistic fashion. And also looking upstream, the parent university is an upstream program where this is before uh, poor health co- health outcomes occur and trying to mitigate early on in, in early academic years. You know, and as I hear you describe it, it also seems like it's a good weapon to to battle with generational poverty issues. And, th- and that generational effect is really wonderful. Exactly. Um, Exactly. It breaks the cycle. It breaks that uh, generational cycle of poverty. It has that opportunity and often we see that it does. And what we're thrilled is now Parent University has been in existence for many years. Uh, we are seeing um, our, our, our children that have gone, you know, gone th- through Parent University with their parents um, graduating college ready, going away to college, and um, what we hope is that they come back and serve their community uh, because uh, uh, it's just so important to have um, representation of the of the community we li- live in that is serving our community, whether it be in public policy or in healthcare. Well, again, I'm really grateful for you taking the time, Dana, to tell us about this. It's great material, and I'm grateful for you telling us. Thanks, you too. Nice to meet you. Dana Codron is the Northern California Regional Director of Community Health Investment for Providence. Amy Koo is Executive Director of Health Equity for Providence Home and Community Care. We began our conversation by talking about a phrase first used in 1968 by Jesuit Father Pedro Arupe in a letter to his order which was then adopted by many of the Catholic bishops in Latin America. The principle is to maintain a preferential option for the poor. I appreciate you bringing up preferential option for the poor to get started with, because preferential option for the poor is not only a critical component of what it means to be a Catholic institution and how we in put the poor first, um, and, and think about issues of justice, but it's also so critical as we think about healthcare. There was a huge shift as we think about global health. And when Dr. Paul Farmer uh, came to help global health practitioners think about putting the poor first, if we think about meeting the needs of global health challenges based on giving of our surplus, giving of that that is charity, our world is going to continue to get sick. We simply must start with those who are most vulnerable. It's a Catholic teaching. It's a global health philosophy. It's really a, 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 an avenue for us to make for a, a healthier world. And so when we think about those who are most vulnerable, those who are imprisoned, those who have no access, those who are at the fringe of society, those who have been victims of discrimination and, uh, and, and, and structural violence, we have to start with them because they are most at risk. Disease has a preferential option for the poor. And so too, as healthcare institutions, we have to combat illness and poverty with a preferential option for the poor. And I think as we understand um, that very Christian teaching, that the first shall be the last and the last shall be first, that's how we begin to build a healthier world. That's beautiful, Amy. Some of my most formative experiences have been in Central America and with the Jesuits who really led the Catholic Church around the theologies of liberation. And what that really meant for the people and for the Jesuits at the time was the interpretation of scripture from the perspective of the poor. Mary teaches us to go to the well, but if there is no water in the well, how are we called to ensure that our neighbors have access to clean water? And those are some of the questions that I think Theologically, we are invited to ask ourselves, um, you know, really following the Second Vatican Council and thinking about the church as a mover and a shaker of justice within our world. 
Um, so the Second Vatican Council, you know, absolutely transformed the church, not to see and to romanticize the poor, but to recognize that the church has a role in helping liberate the poor and to stand by the poor and their suffering to better health, to accessing the goods of the earth, to a more equitable distribution of resources. Um, I think that the Vatican Council, the Second Vatican Council, you know, was really just a turning point in the church, in the church's history of understanding what, what was the role of Catholic institutions in today's world. And very much um, what has been at the heart of who Providence as an organization is, uh, how our sisters were formed. Our sisters spent time in El Salvador. They worked with Christian-based communities. They were very much influenced and continue to be influenced uh, by the, uh, the teachings of, um, of, of Archbishop Romero and, and many of the martyrs in Central America during the, the 70s. Yeah. When you look at neighborhoods around Providence hospitals, some are in smaller cities, some in megalopolises, it's hard maybe sometimes to understand exactly what poverty looks like in that sense and how it's impacting people's health. Give us an example of what your eyes see. What, when you're looking at the mission of Providence in the places where it's rooted, what are you looking for? It's interesting kind of building off of our conversation on global health and thinking about what this looks like in, um, in our own communities. But I think there's a lot of lessons from global health practitioners about what that looks like. And what it looks like is for us to get outside of our four walls, for us to go to where the need is greatest, for us to recognize that there are communities that are intimidated by our structures, that don't feel welcomed into our spaces, that don't feel included or feel that sense of belonging when they walk into our waiting rooms. And so we very much have to go outside of our walls and find new ways to address healthcare challenges for those who are most marginalized. What that looks like is creating relationships with community partners, making sure that we have patient family advisory councils that help us navigate some of those uh, questions around um, care practices of minority populations how people prefer to receive their care. Uh, it means we have to transform healthcare into um, digitally enabled or community focused approaches uh, that help bridge some of those divides that currently exist. And I think that that divide that's existed with healthcare and marginalized communities is very strong. Um, I think any one of us know that it's hard to go into a clinic it's intimidating to go into um, a, a care setting, and more so if you are experiencing poverty, you've experienced racism, you've experienced discrimination within the healthcare sector. Right. I think what I hear you saying, though, is when you look around, you're looking for ways for personalism to take hold of the encounter. Yes, we're going to have digital interfaces and data is going to be collected and we're going to make use of all of the technological advances that are available to us, but the encounter has to be personal. Yeah, we have to meet people where they're at. And that might be physically to go to them, um, to create uh, space, clinics in their home environment near where they work, live and play. Um, but I think the other thing you're getting at here is the importance of our providers to really understanding those unique needs of their patient population. When I think about health equity, I mean, there's really two pieces that are top of mind for me. One is how do people access our programs and how do we reduce barriers to ease their way to our services? And two, um, how do we truly know our patients and provide patient-centered care? And that requires our providers to really uh, think about the care experience, um, the day-to-day -day experiences of any patient that they might encounter who might have very different life experiences from them. 
And so they have to ask questions. They have to really get to know that patient. They have to get to know what some of the challenges that that individual faces on a daily basis, what their family faces, what they're experiencing um, in the workplace, um, and, and creating you know, really a deep sense of trust. It's one of the reasons why um, you know cultural congruence is so important. If we don't have providers that look and have similar experiences to our patient populations, there's going to be a disconnect. Mm-hmm. And so that I would say is is one real challenge for our healthcare system right now is making sure that we have a diverse caregiver population that really reflects our community, um, and that our caregiver population is thinking with a, uh, a multicultural, uh, you know, lens or um, is asking really good questions so that they can better understand their patient population. An issue that came up when I spoke with Dana that really sort of hit home for me was she was, she was making the point that you're making now, that the cultural congruence is important. And I, I walked away from that thinking, what do you do with minority, minority populations? In other words, small populations of people for whom you probably don't have um, staff that look like them. I, I'm thinking at the moment of, of the influx of Afghan refugees that are and evacuees that are showing up in communities all over the country. Well, you may not have an Afghan interpreter at a clinic. How do you make sure that every person feels that. And, I, and I'm not asking it in a sort of gotcha way. I'm really kind of curious, what, what do we do to make sure every person in their individualism feels represented? Mm-hmm. We really have to get creative and be innovative. One of my favorite programs that we've started up recently is partnering with refugee resettlement agencies. Uh, there is a... Um, a very true, there's a truism for, um, for what communities need and they need, all that they need is themselves. Um, that is to say, if we're working with the Afghan community, we need the Afghan community to be part of the care team. Um, we're right now working on a program that trains, develops, and hires refugees and immigrants. And we're looking at our data to say, is there a minority population in this community that we can hire from so that not only are they getting gainful employment, but they're also meeting the needs of their own community? How incredibly empowering. And those are the types of solutions that I think we need to be doing more of and that we have to continue pushing ourselves and challenging ourselves regarding what what care teams really need to look like. Many cultures have, have, have um, cultural navigator type programs. Within the Latino community, you have the programs around promotoras, community health workers that have trust with the community. We can engage in helping navigate the ways of patients. Our providers are going to better understand the uh, dynamics of that community, uh, the needs of that patient if they're working with a cultural navigator and care provider. Um, so, so there's a wonderful opportunity for us to partner, for us to hire, for us to lean on that expertise and, um, and to learn along the way. And I think that that opportunity to learn um, in an increasingly global and multicultural environment in any one of our cities is really exciting. Can you um, do some blue sky thinking for me and paint a picture of what healthcare looks like 20 years from now? What will we have learned? How will it be different? You think I have that answer, huh? <laughs> I, th- I bet you have a dream. I bet you have a vision. <laughs> That's a really interesting question. You know, one of the most innovative programs within Providence is called PACE, All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly. PACE provides wraparound services. We are the payer and we are the provider. We have all of the right incentives in place to keep people as healthy as they possibly can be and allow them to live the fullness of their lives in their communities and with their families, despite for having severe um, health complications. 
We've been able to demonstrate within the PACE program that we can have higher patient satisfaction and higher caregiver satisfaction because it's so tightly wrapped around the individual. Within the PACE program, there's an interdisciplinary team of caregivers that support each patient. And you can imagine what those conversations look like. You have a provider, you have a nurse, a social worker, an occupational therapist. But there's someone on that team who always has a deeper level of insight about that patient. Can you imagine who that person is? Their driver is picking them up, having an informal conversation with them on the way to where they're going. The driver can see how they're getting on the bus how they're getting up from their seat and how they're walking down the stairs. And so as part of that care team conversation, uh, the doctor can say, well, I, I haven't heard uh, the, the, this patient complain about, about his leg for in a while. He sounds like he must be doing a lot better. But then the driver can sit back and say, actually, I saw him limp onto the bus today. We might want to check back in. Those types of wraparound services those types of webs that we can create so that people don't fall through the cracks and we can create a protective society for those who are most vulnerable is the way that I would like to see health care of the future look for all people. Similarly, I think we need similar models for education and for any services that an individual might need. Um, there's a nonprofit here in the South King County area that does similar programming for at-risk youth. They make sure that individuals have a mentor, that they have after-school programming, that they have transportation so that they can get to and from the sporting events and uh, you know, helping kids uh, stay active and engaged in their community. Those types of things, regardless of one's ability to pay, are going to be the things that reduce the costs in the long run on our emergency rooms, on our prisons, for our social services, and they're going to enable a healthier society. So I really think as a society, we have to be thinking about wraparound services uh, that really are centered in and around patients' needs. I love the communitarian nature of the PACE program. I love that the the environment is community centered, but the care team is community centered, and you can immediately see the benefit of that. You mentioned, you know, the driver being part of the rounding process or the discussion. A couple of months ago, we had um, two people who worked at Pace, and um, I walked away from that conversation feeling that it was absolutely the model, not only of elder care, but of care for all of us. It's like, who wouldn't want to have an environment like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I uh, am, am always in awe of PACE as well. And when, whenever we have international visitors, I always bring them to the PACE sites. Interestingly, um, in a lot of international contexts, you, ha you have healthcare services that are thoughtfully curated around patient needs. Um, and yet the challenge with a lot of those services is that they're resource poor. And so there's a perception that in some way in the United States, we have a better system of healthcare. But um, I would say what we're looking at in the United States is a real challenge of allocating resources to those who are most in need. And so um, you know, I think there's a lot to learn from, um, from, from Global Health Solutions and from some of these innovative programs. And I think PACE being, you know, probably the, 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 the most innovative and the most thoughtful of all programs. Do people ever push back on the need for or the value of this? Do you ever have to make an argument for why health equity is as important as it is? There's certainly people who push back on the concept of health equity and what I have come to realize is that if you sit down and you have the conversation with someone about what health equity actually is, they're very supportive of um, ensuring that people are living their healthiest and best lives and that we are uh, tailoring programs to meet their unique needs. But I do think that there is 
certain political inertia right now that's really pushing back on concepts of equity um, without really understanding uh, what, what it means. And, and I think, you know, as we've talked about, it's really about patient-centered care and easing the access for, um, for, for patients who are most marginalized. So, I, you know, I, I think that if you have the conversation, People are, are, are very open, um, and yet I, I, I do lament that you're right. You know, there is some pushback that exists right now. Well, it's another example of the personalism being necessary. I mean, people need to have a personal conversation to understand exactly what, what's being talked about. Yeah, I mean, I think that equity is described sometimes even as reverse racism. And it's really quite extraordinary to me that people could see it that way. Um, I welcome those conversations to, to, I think, precisely to your point, Sean, to try to dispel some of the misconceptions that are out there. Um, at the end of the day, we're looking to create a more healthy world, live into our mission of serving the most poor and vulnerable living into our promise of know me, care for me, ease my way. And, um, and as an organization, we've really made a commitment on uh, um, health for a better world. And so, you know, as an organization, we are all in with health equity. Um, and, uh, and, and I think that the pushback is really misunderstandings about what it truly is. That's Amy Koo, Executive Director of Health Equity for Providence Home and Community Care. Earlier, we heard from Dana Codron, the Northern California Regional Director of Community Health Investment for Providence, and Megan Mackinich-Jones, Executive Director of Community Investment Strategy and Evaluation for Providence. At the top of the show, we heard a story from Raina Oliver. She's a senior at the University of Washington and a health equity research intern at Providence. You'll find links to our guests' work on our website, hearmenowpodcast.org. The Hear Me Now Podcast is a production of the Providence Institute for Human Caring. Follow us on Twitter at human underscore caring. The program is produced by Scott Acord and Melody Fawcett. We have research help from medical librarians Carrie Grinstead, Seema Bakta, Sarah Viscuso, Amanda Schwartz, Catherine Gibbs, and Heather Barton. Our theme music was written by Roger Neal. The executive producer is Michael Drummond. I'm Sean Collins. Thanks for listening. Be well. Be well.